Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Abgenommen bedauert. An official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Tonight's file, The Sorrowful Swindler. Before opening tonight's file, it is my pleasure to bring you season's greetings from the Equitable Society. This week at the Equitable Society in the lobby of our home office building, we have decorated one of the tallest Christmas trees in New York. And this very afternoon, as we gathered round this tree and the sound of the traditional carols echoed through the halls, there was one pleasant thought that kept coming to our minds. We thought of all the homes in this country that are celebrating Christmas more merrily, more securely. We thought of all the children to whom Santa Claus will be more real, because someone in that home had the forethought to purchase life insurance. And we of the Equitable Society and the Equitable Society representatives all over America are happy to have done our share in bringing that kind of happiness to so many American homes this Christmas time. And so to each of our three and a quarter million members and to the other millions of Americans who enjoy this radio program, we of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States wish a very Merry Christmas and a very Happy New Year. And now to the file on the Sorrowful Swindler. America virtually on the eve of celebrating her first peacetime Christmas in several years, the topic of crime seems hardly in keeping with the mood of the day. But then there is a negative kind of relationship between the two. Because it can be said truly that the doctrine of crime is the direct antithesis of the philosophy of Christmas. One is the religion of taking. The other, the religion of giving. And to the criminal, 
Christmas time is no more than just another time in which to apply his profession of cheating, as demonstrated in tonight's case from the files of your FBI. Several years ago, during another Christmas season, a man using the alias of Colonel Weatherford and a companion in larceny were speeding eastward on a crack train headed for New York. You know, Colonel... Yeah? I still can't figure out how come we leave Chicago so quick. I think, Michael, we may sum it up in one word of two syllables. Like which? Police. You mean they were hep to us? They would have been, Michael, shortly after that check I cashed began to ricochet. Yeah, but suppose they get an idea we caught this train and they got the New York police waiting for us when we roll into Grand Central. Please, Michael. I'd rather not have to wrestle with that remote contingency for the moment. Huh? Allow me, if you will, to revel in a vision of the unbounded joy of my dear Valerie when I show her the fruits of this little mission to the West. You ain't going to give her the whole five grand. Valerie has demanded a mink coat of Santa Claus. And Valerie, my dear Michael, knows who Santa Claus is. Now, here's the credit, please. All right, get him right here, Colonel. Yeah, I checked your ticket, please. Oh, yes. Here's my ticket right here. Thank you. What time do we get to New York in the morning, Mr. Conductor? Nine o'clock. Well, I do hope my daughter is there to meet me. Sweet little old lady, ain't she? Yes. You may keep uh, this part, madam. Oh, thank you. Oh, just a minute, please. Yes? I wonder if you'd help me. I have some stock certificates with me which may be very valuable. I'm listening. I'm kind of afraid to keep them in my berth with me tonight. Well, I'll be back directly, madam, and uh, we'll make some arrangements, I'm sure. Oh, thank you very much. Michael, I think Dunder and Blitton and the other tiny reindeer are about to make a landing on our own roof. Since crime never takes a holiday, neither does your FBI. And at about the same moment that the pompous gentleman on the New York-bound train became stock certificate-minded, Special Agent Barclay in the New York office of the FBI was handed a teletype from Washington. What does it say, Alan? Well, Jim, there goes my Christmas shopping push with Marjorie today. Oh? They want us to go to work on a swindler. Anybody we know? No, he's avoided federal violations up to now. Well, what's the up to now? He put over a fraudulent deal in Denver a few days ago by posing as a United States attorney. Uh-oh. He may have stopped over in Chicago, but they believe he's headed for New York. Well, is this his home? He's got a record here. Well, who is he? Several persons, it seems. Colonel Josiah Weatherford and about six others. Well, here, look this over and let's get busy. Right. While you're digesting the teletype, I'll check with the New York police. And also put a cover on railroad, plane, and bus terminals. I didn't quite catch the name. Weatherford. Colonel Josiah Weatherford. Oh, yes. Uh, well, I'm Mrs. Greeley. How do you do? Uh, please sit down. Thank you. I came primarily to apologize for staring at you as I did. Oh, I didn't think anything about it. You see, you look so much like my own dear mother. Oh, then I feel quite honored. She passed on last March. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. This is to be my first Christmas without her. It'll be most desolate. Yes, I know it will. <sighs> you live in New York, 
Mrs. Gillis? Oh, land, no. It's too big a place for me. I'm just going there to spend Christmas with my daughter. How fortunate for your daughter. Oh, uh, I suppose that you live in New York. Well, I sort of divide my time between Chicago and New York. I have an investment business with offices in both. Investment business, did you say? Yes. Well, then maybe you'd know about my stock certificate. I beg your pardon? I mean, uh, know whether they're any good or not. No. Well, I don't know. May I see them? Oh, dear. I've already let the conductor put them away in a safe place for the night. Oh. You see, I was going to have them looked into while I was in New York. Uh, I could do that for you. You see, my husband has been dead about ten years, and... I didn't know he'd left anything like that till, till the other day I was rummaging around in his old desk and <laughs> there it was, a thousand shares all tied together. thousand shares of what? A Lodestar Mining Company. What was that again? Lodestar Mining Company. Lodestar. That's what I thought you said. Do you know something about it? Uh, well, it's not listed on the exchange anymore that I know. Oh, then, then you mean it's, uh, it's no good. I wouldn't say that. I want to look it up for you. Oh. You will let me serve you in this, won't you? Oh, I'd be very glad if you would. Especially since that's your business. Well, now, you just leave everything to me and I'll be talking to you again in the morning before we get off the train. Oh, thanks. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, how'd you make out? Santa Claus is not merely knocking at our door, Michael. He's trying to break in with a pack full of gold. Congratulations, Farrell speaking. Morning, Jim. This is Alan. Hey, say, where are you? Grand Central, waiting to cover the Manhattan Limited when it gets in. Good. I was just going to have to hop over there myself. What's up? Well, Weatherford's on that train. How do you know? A teletype just came in from Chicago. He passed a bad check there yesterday. And the ticket agent at LaSalle Station remembers selling Weatherford and a man with him space on the Manhattan. Then I've been around. It's possible in. Right. Yes, sir, Mr. Barclay. A man of that description occupied space in car 254. Then what happened to him, Porter? Well, uh, he and the fellow with him got off at Harmon this morning. Uh-oh. Well, I sure wish I'd have known earlier. Well, we didn't know ourselves in time to be prepared for that trick. Well, thanks anyway. Uh, oh, say, uh, uh, wait a minute. Yes? There's somebody might know something about him, and maybe she's still in the station. Who? A little old lady who had the space across the aisle from there. Oh? This man gave me a note when he got off at Harmon to give to her when she got up. What's she look like? Well, her name is Greeley. She's about five foot two, gray hair, and she's wearing... Michael. Yeah? Valerie's waiting in the apartment here for me. I prefer to see you alone. Yeah, I prefer the same thing. I'll wait for you downstairs. Splendid. Valerie? Valerie? I'm in here. Valerie, my darling, come here. Wait a minute. Not so fast. But, my dear, aren't you glad to see me? I don't know. How was your trip? How was it? Look, my sweet. Yeah. Five thousand dollars. Can you see one of the bills? They're genuine, every last one of them. Oh, my darling, I am so glad to see you. I have missed you so much. <laughs> and now I can go right down this very day and get my mink coat. Oh, well, 
You see, Valerie? What's the matter? Well, naturally, you're going to get the fur coat, Valerie. That's right. But tomorrow will be ample time. What is my thing? I'm waiting for the hook. What is it? I merely want to retain possession of the money for the balance of the day. Go on. For five dollars a share, darling... I can pick up a thousand shares of Lodestar mining stock from a party who doesn't know their true value. Have they got any true value? Have they? Lodestar merged a few years ago with Rocky Mountain. Each share of Lodestar is still exchangeable for one share of Rocky Mountain. Worth today, $100 a share. You mean put out 5000 and get back 100000 Exactly. Look. A mink coat on the back is worth 40 in the window. Nothing doing. Well, darling, you can't. You buy. just dreamed this up to keep from coming across. I swear I didn't, Valerie. She's going to call me any minute. What? Now, don't get excited, my dear. Don't get excited. It's a little old lady. A Mrs. Greeley I met on the train. She has the stock. Oh, yeah? That's probably Mrs. Greeley now. <laughs> Colonel Weatherford speaking. This is Mrs. Greeley. Oh, hello, Mrs. Greeley. Are you at your daughter's now? No. No, she lives in the country and she didn't get my telegram until this morning. Oh, but she'll be in for me this evening. Oh, I see. Well, Mrs. Greeley, I have some good news for you about your stock. Oh, you have? How would you like to have $5,000 in cash for a Christmas present? $5,000? That's right. Good gracious me. Uh, you just give me the name of your hotel and I'll be right over in a few minutes. You mean we'll be right over. Alan. Yes, Jim? I must go over as soon as I could. Good. I think this is our best prospect of getting a line on Weatherford. Mm-hmm. The Greeley woman checked her back at the station. Yeah. You got anything out of the conductor? Mrs. Greeley gave him what she said was some stock certificates to keep safe for her last night. Oh? Weatherford was across the aisle and saw it all. I see. Ten to one, he's trying to pull a swindle on her for that stock. Well, I hope she comes back for her bag before the job's done. Yes, but she checked it two hours ago. And a lot can happen in two hours. Mining company is out of existence. I I don't see why the group this young lady represents wants to buy my stock. Oh, you should make that clearer, Colonel Weatherford. Uh, the group still controls the Lodestar Company's property, Mrs. Greeley. Oh. And they're going to start operating again. And they're willing to pay five five let's say five dollars a share for all the old outstanding stock. Well, maybe I'd better hold on to mine and Maybe it'll be worth more after a while. Oh, oh, explain it to her, Colonel. It may be years before it's worth a cent more, Mrs. Greeley, and after all, $5,000 is a lot of money. Uh, well, uh, I'll trust your judgment, Colonel Weatherford. Good, I'm sure you won't regret it. Do you uh, have all that money with you? <laughs> Here it is. $5,000. Fifty one hundred dollars bill. Gracious me. Now, if you have the stock for you. Oh, of course, yes. It's right here in my handbag. Splendid. Yes. yes, here we are. Mm-hmm. And now I want you both to put up your hands. What? What's the meaning of that gun? Oh, it merely means that I know as much about Lodestar as you do, you old swindler. <laughs> and I wish I did have some of the stuff. Well, now, look here, you, you can't... You asked her she didn't want $5,000 for a Christmas present, didn't you? But, but I... Well, I'm not going to give up my mink coat this evening. Uh, 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 be nice now. And back into that closet over there. Go sell you. There. Who knows? Maybe somebody will open it before Christmas. 
qualify as men of goodwill, do they? So let's leave them for a moment while I tell you about someone you'll like. A man who is bubbling over with the contagious good humor that infects all good people this time of year. This week at the Equitable Society, I met a senior vice president coming out of the building. He was carrying a regular pyramid of packages in his arms. And just as I said hello to him, something went wrong with the middle of the pyramid, and half of his packages fell out of his arms and slid to the floor. Serves me right, he laughed as I helped him to pick him up. Just what I deserve for putting off my Christmas shopping till the last minute and then trying to do it all at once. He paused and chuckled. And I'm the man who spent his life telling folks not to put things off. My business in life is telling folks not to put off buying the life insurance protection they need. Well, I said, that's not such a bad way to spend your life, is it? He smiled and answered, saying, Yes, there are a lot of people in this world who are much happier right now because someone from the Equitable Society kept urging a husband or father not to put off buying life insurance. Believe me, that's a pretty pleasant thought for a fellow to entertain this time of year. Well, as I said goodbye to him, the thought came to me that it would be a very fine thing if all members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States had the same opportunity to know the officers of their society that I have. Could get to know the sincerity and human understanding that they put into their daily work managing the life insurance of three and a quarter million Equitable Society members. I've met all these men, and I've yet to find any stuffing in any one of their shirts or any brass in any one of their hats. No matter how important their jobs are, their doors are always open, and their time is always at the disposal of members of this Life Assurance Society. You see, the officers of the Equitable Society are the kind of men who take pride in the thought that this week and every week for 86 years, the Equitable Society has been building security for you, your home, and your country. And now back to the file on the sorrowful swindler. There is a saying that no one is so easily swindled as a swindler. And the victim, intending himself to commit a crime, can ill afford to complain to the law. Therefore, being denied recourse to the law, he usually takes matters into his own hands and generally with the same net result. Both are caught. At the moment, however, the little gray-haired confidence woman is trudging through the snow away from the hotel with $5,000 in $100 bills while behind the locked door of the closet in the hotel room. But, Valerie, darling... Don't darling me, you... Financial wizard. Nagging me is not going to get us out of here. You just be glad it's a closet where there's not room enough to swing at you. Michael's waiting just outside the hotel. You're probably building a snowman. But he's surely seen the woman leaving by herself. Oh, of course, of course. He probably helped her across the street. You'd think he'd suspect something and come up here to see about it? Oh, no, that calls for thinking. Valerie. If you'll help me push against the door just once more, I'm sure we can force it. I should knock myself out getting you out of a closet. Look, you're in here, too. You got us in, you get us out. Very uh, well. Five thousand and get back a hundred thousand. Can't miss. It's a sin. Oh, for heaven's sake, Valerie, shut up. Uh, 
get out of here quickly. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, I'm warning you, I'm getting a mink coat tomorrow or else. Or else what? Or else the police are going to learn where you got that 5000 in the first place. But, Valerie, darling, you can't... You heard me. <laughs> it's the mink or the clink. Well, it doesn't look like our Mrs. Greeley's coming back for a bag. She only checked it a couple of hours ago. Give her time. Yes, but in the meantime, this weather... Hey, wait a minute. This looks like our little lady now. Yeah, uh, seems to fit a description all right. Yeah, she's going over to the baggage counter. Come on. No, wait a minute. What? For one thing, somebody's trailing her. Huh? Look over there. And according to the conductor's description, that would be Weatherford's pal. Yeah, you're right. And item number two, do you know who our Mrs. Greeley really is? No. I had dealings with her a couple of years ago. That's an old-time operator who's known as Larson Annie. What? So far as Weatherford and she are concerned, I'd say at this point it's a question of who has done what to whom. Well, then let's pick them up and ask some questions. And Miss Getting Weatherford? Hey, look, there she goes. And a shadow, too. Come on, Jim. Let's make it a convoy. What is it going to do to come back here to the apartment? Michael wasn't in front of the hotel, was he? So what? Darling, please. Patience and fortitude. Probably saw the woman leave and... Oh, just a minute. Hello? This is Mike. Say, what's going on? Where the devil are you, Michael? I seen the old lady leave the hotel by herself and I said something's crazy about this. Where's she now? I'm in a telephone booth at the State National Bank. I said, where is she? She's standing in line with a deposit slip and a fistful of dough. Oh. What happened? We've been robbed, Michael. Yeah? Don't take your eyes off her until she holds up somewhere and then call me, do you hear? Sure, I... If you slip up, Michael, it'll be a cheerless Christmas for you and me. What do you mean? Did you ever spend Christmas behind the bars, Michael? Not yet. Then do what I tell you or you will. Shadow back from the phone. He must have contacted Weatherford. What do you make of all this? I'd say that Weatherford has now learned how it feels to be swindled himself. Well, he took somebody for the money first, and now Annie's taken him. Yes, but he puts it up to us to take them both. Well, what's your idea? You stay here and keep your eyes open. And you? If Weatherford's pal saw me talking to Annie, what would he probably think? Well, that you were a confederate first, maybe. That's all I wanted to be sure of. What? Maybe this will do the trick, Jim. Come, darling. Let me help you trim the Christmas tree. You better get out and trim somebody for that mink coat. I tell you, I'm waiting on a telephone call from Michael. I'm surprised he can even use a telephone. You should not disparage Michael's intelligence, my dear. Ha! Providence beat me to it. Michael is a simple soul, but a loyal one with a great amount of common sense. And on occasion displays a flash of superior intelligence. Maybe you ought to be working for him, then. Yeah, I think she'll cocktail. No, and don't try to soften me up because I'm... Yes? It's me, Carl. Well? I done what you told me. Where is she? You better meet me quick, corner of Madison and 91st. There are four corners, Michael, you know. Yeah, but I'll be standing on just one of them, boys. He's side downtown. You better hurry. I'll be there right away. You mean we'll be there. Then come on quickly, my dear. Now you shall have that mink. Mm-hmm. 
Hey, yes, sir. Uh, Valerie, my dear. Okay, okay. Here you are, driver. Thanks, All right, where is he? Uh, right over there. Michael. Oh, hiya. Where's the woman? I've done a good job of trailing her. You ought to be proud of her. I said, where is she? Like that brownstone house. What are we waiting for? Lead the way, Michael. Okay, come on. She went right in here, the ground floor. This better work. Please, my dear. Yes? Greetings, Mrs. Greeley. Well, come right in. Go ahead, darling. Michael. I dare say you're a trifle surprised to see us again. Well, as a matter of fact, Colonel Weatherford, I am a little surprised the way things turned out, but we rather expected you'd come here. Who's we? Yes, what do you mean? What she means, Weatherford, is that you're all under arrest. What? What is this? We're special agents of the FBI. This is an apartment that we used on another case. It was also convenient to bring Mrs. Greeley here for questioning. We hoped you'd follow her. You mean she's working with you? Oh, not willingly, Colonel. But as you know, this is the Christmas season, and it's full of surprises for everyone. And now, your FBI would like to take this opportunity to wish for all of you a Merry Christmas and a happy, peaceful, and prosperous New Year. And through your continued support and cooperation, it will go on protecting your right to enjoy them year after year. Before we tell you about next week's thrilling case from the files of your FBI... A word about a man worth knowing. To your FBI, you look for national security. And to the Equitable Society for the Financial Security of Life Insurance. In the past 86 years, the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States has weathered four wars and seven major depressions. During that time, over five and one-half billion dollars have been paid to policyholders. This tower of strength security and stability is represented in your community by a man whom hundreds of your fellow citizens know as their good friend, the Equitable Society agent, who, like your FBI, is dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Next week, we will bring you another colorful story from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Murder on the High Seas. The incidents used in tonight's Equitable Society's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. Programs in this series of particular interest to servicemen and women are broadcast overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Tonight, the music was under the direction of Frederick Steiner, the author was Frank Ferries, 
And your narrator was Dean Calvin. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. Now this is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for This is Your FBI. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. This is your FBI. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The subject of our FBI file, Grand Larceny. Its title, The Skyway Man. Crimes are committed for many reasons. Revenge, fear, ignorance, hate. But the greatest number are caused by greed. The dictionary defines greed as acquisitive desire beyond reason. But that definition does not explain why certain people are possessed by that unreasonable appetite. For the explanation, we must go to the field of psychiatry, which tells us that in the case of many adults, greed is a result of insecurity stemming from their youth. Insecurity which often is a result of a lack of affection by parents toward a child. Sometimes it is a result of overprotection of a child by parents. The insecurity coming when the child goes out into the world and finds himself unable to cope with a society which does not give him similar overprotection. This message is brought to you so that parents in the homes into which this program is coming may learn what they may do today to well determine whether or not a crime will be committed ten years from now. Tonight's FBI file opens on the midway of a county fair. It is early afternoon as a well-dressed man approaches one of the midway games of chess. Come on, anybody, you there, mister. Come on up to the counter. No, I don't want to play cards with you. Never gamble in my life, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you an amazing deck of cards. Uh, Come up a little closer, mister. That's it, right up to the counter. Now, let's say you've been losing to some rascal. You want to get even. That's human. That's natural. You bet this rascal a dollar, you can pick out the four aces without looking. You let him examine the cards, you let him shuffle them. Now, go ahead, mister. You shuffle them. Now, you leave the deck right where it is. That's it. You press down here, turn the deck this way, and the four aces come sliding off. Now, I could charge you $50 for this deck. I could charge you any price. But I don't want to be a millionaire. That's why I'm selling them cheap. $2. That's all it costs. And I... Hey... Hey, mister, come back. (laughs) Al, where did you come from? Well, son, if you hadn't been driving that customer away, you'd have seen me. I thought that'd be my first sale today. Uh, Do you have a report for me? Yeah. We're not doing a job here. No? Why not? Just tell me, uh, where do they keep the money? The manager's got a safe in his office. If it's in his safe, the money's as good as trickling through our fingers. No, it ain't. I presume there's a reason for your pessimism. 
Remember how you came into the fairgrounds? Certainly I do. Of course, of course. That's the only gate, and the road from town is the only road. There's no getaway. Ah, there must be. Do you feel like gambling? Well, if the proposition's attractive. Depend on one, you can't figure one out. Yeah, well, I'll just risk five dollars. You got fifty to your five. Splendid, splendid. Now you go back to amusing the populace with your mediocre pitch. I'll uh, survey the premises. That same afternoon at the FBI field office in the city some miles away, Special Agent Jim Taylor approaches the desk of Agent George Bentley. Hi, George. Oh, hello, Jim. Ah, this is one fugitive we won't have to worry about for a while. He got 30 years this morning. We got a couple of new ones on our hands. No? Who? A case the SAC just put us on. Several county fairs and carnivals have been burglarized in the past six months. Yeah, so I saw in the bulletin. Well, we know definitely the same safecracker worked in four different states because he left fingerprints behind each place. Well, that'd probably mean the loot was transported interstate. Yeah, I guess so. Any idea on the burglar? No, but we do have evidence there are at least two men. A watchman up in Oregon saw them run after one of the burglaries. How come we were alerted? Well, as the watchman approached the shack where the safe was, he heard the burglars talking. One of them said something about coming here. Oh. Where was the last job? Oregon. Our office there is working on it. I thought we'd cover the transportation terminals here. If we find an ex-safecracker on any passenger list, it just might be a lead. <laughs> Hi, Chuck. You done your jump? Just now. Pretty soft. One jump and through for the day. Maybe through for good. You retiring? Might have to. Come on, walk me over to the office. What's playing there? Andy wrote to some carnies down south. That where you're going? Yeah, if we get a booking. What happens if you don't? We try something new, not eating. You that broke? I got about six and a half bucks, and Andy's holding a ten spot. Maybe you can buy some dough on the plane. Anybody who would lend us money on that wouldn't have sense enough to have money. Hi, kids. Hi. How's old aches and pains? Okay. Andy, uh, you been to the office? Yeah. Any hot offers? Nothing. Well, something will turn up. Fellas, why don't you get a new act? We got one. For sure. Didn't you see me come down on fire? I mean a whole new act. Forget about the plane, the parachute. Start from scratch. Better. How long you been doing publicity? Ten years. Then it'd be like me telling you all to forget your typewriter. We've been doing this act since Chuck got out of high school. But in those days, it was a novelty to see a guy jump from a plane. Today, in a newsreel, a thousand GIs jump with guns. Don't you see? You're you're selling a stale joke. I'll see you both later. Where are you going? To the hangar to rest my bones. That's old-fashioned, too. Guess he didn't like my popping off. Oh, that was okay. You saw too? Of course not. Go on, I'll buy you a drink. Sit down. Thanks, thanks. Well, been over the whole layout already? Yep. And the outlook seems to appear gloomy. After this, when I say there's no getaway, don't bet me. Uh, here, I ordered this drink for you. Oh, thanks, John. Thank you. Good luck. 
like this on the market, I don't understand how the population keeps increasing. I uh, took a little look at that safe in the manager's office during my stroll. I can open it with this piece of lemon peel. Why eat your heart? <laughs> Say, how can they get that drunk in this kind of whiskey? He ain't loaded. He ain't? You mean he acts like that all the time? Yeah, he's the guy that jumps from the plane. Plane? Who's plane? Oh, an old job him and his partner own. Oh, what's that young man's name? Chuck White. And uh, the lady with him? Betty Kimball. She's a press agent for sure. Oh, she uh, appears to be leaving. Hey, I thought you said dames in business don't mix. I am not interested in the young lady, but I have a notion about Mr. White. I'll uh, see you in good time. Where you going? I'm going to the bar to accidentally make Mr. White's acquaintance. Tracking down suspects is never an easy job. And this case proved to be no exception. All that afternoon, agents Taylor and Bentley collected passenger lists of trains, planes, and buses originating in Portland. Then the names were teletyped to Washington. Unfortunately, the work produced no affirmative results. That meant your FBI still faced the same problem. The job of apprehending two criminals without knowing their names, descriptions, or whereabouts. George, we've got a lead. What's that, Jim? $5,000 of the loot stolen from the fair in Oregon had just come from the bank. New money? Yeah, and the Portland office got us the serial numbers. Here's a copy for it. Mm-hmm. SAC had me send those serial numbers to all transportation terminals. Oh, fine. Here's a list in return. Well, what's this one? Every fair, carnival, and amusement park in our territory. Hey, that a... Oh, I got it. Okay. Taylor speaking. Yes, sir, that's right. Oh, do you... You know when you took it in? Was that the only one? Oh. Yes, sir. Thank you very much for calling. George, I was the airline ticket agency. They took in one of the $20 bills on the list. When? Today, a Mr. John Smith passed it. The ticket was for Auburn. The name is obviously fictitious. Hey, there's a county fair at Auburn. Good. George, will you notify them and clean up the other details around here? Sure. I'll catch the next plane. Andy. Andy. Up and at him. Come on, come on. I have a pain in the back of my neck. Wait till you hear the news. I was at the saloon on the midway, and I ran into somebody named Mr. Williams at the bar. He'll pay us $300 to take him to Lake City. In old-fashioned money? Yeah, get up. (laughs) What shows this Mr. Williams with? None. He missed his train back to Lake City, and tomorrow's his boy's birthday, so he's got to get home. Yeah, I like that boy is. <laughs> <laughs> he already paid me. Look. Where's Mr. Williams now? Shopping for a birthday present. When's he want to leave? Sometime tonight. Well, that'll give me time. For what? A way of healing my neck. A nice, warm poultice, a new $10 bills. <laughs> <laughs> Cards this way, and everyone's the eight of diamonds. You say that's not a trick? Okay, try this one. 
Bet that rascal a dolly can cut the deck ten times and always cut an ace. You say it can't be done? Well, just watch the deck. I'll be glad to. Oh, hi. Son, did it ever occur to you that the lack of customers could be due to a poor product? Ah, these rooms wouldn't pay a deuce for a key to Fort Knox. I uh, came to bid you a fond farewell. The fair don't close for an hour yet. I am acquainted with the schedule, but my plane is waiting. I'll meet you at my apartment. What about the job? Son, in this little black bag are not only the tools of my profession, but the former contents of safe. What? An opportunity presented itself a few moments ago that was a little bit too good to pass up. I'll just swing it solo. Eavesdropping outside the manager's office. I heard him tell a party on the telephone that he'd be right over to judge the livestock. Nobody saw you go in, did they? I beg your pardon. <laughs> this is the first time I ever blew a ten-to-one bet and liked it. Well, I'll deduct the loss from your portion of the proceeds. Okay. Oh, uh, son. Yeah. When the gendarmes arrive... Uh, don't be surprised if they assume the theft was committed by your devil-may-care compatriot. Who? Uh, Mr. Chuck White. When I finished work, I left a memento for the police. Uh, a little wallet I borrowed from his pocket this afternoon. Now back to the FBI file, The Skyway Man. No child enters life a criminal. Yet today, approximately one person out of every 20 in the United States has a fingerprint arrest record in the Washington files of your FBI. In tonight's case, you see two of those people an older criminal, and a young man in his 20s. Each is a confirmed lawbreaker. Why? Actually, the sources of crime in America may be sought in three directions. In the abnormal personality traits of the criminal, in the general culture of American society, and in the abnormal physical or social conditions under which the criminal has lived. Of those, perhaps the most important is the last the physical or social conditions under which the criminal has lived. Each person is a product of certain influences, and it is axiomatic that home life and parents rank at the top of those influences. If you are a parent, what are you doing to help prevent your child from becoming a criminal of the future? Is he learning by watching you to respect law and order? Are you giving him the attention and affection he needs? Your FBI has learned many things in its years of fighting crime, one of them being that even more than charity, crime prevention begins at home. Tonight's FBI file continues later that night at the county fairgrounds. Special Agent Taylor is in the manager's office when Agent Bentley arrives. Jim, I hear this place was burglarized tonight. Yeah, just before I got here. Even after our warning, huh? The manager thought his safe couldn't be cracked. Where is he now? It's down at police headquarters. They sent an alarm on two suspects named Chuck White and Andy Anderson after they found this wallet near the safe. Belongs to White. Who's he? He's a parachute jumper with the show. Anderson is his pilot. Any idea where they went? 
No, but they took off right after the robbery. The manager know where they're supposed to work next? Well, this is the end of the circuit, George. From here, everybody splits up for the winter. Oh. There's one other piece of evidence against White and Anderson. They came here from the fair near Portland. I guess we better answer it. Hello. Oh, yes, Mr. Mitchell. I did when? Fine. Hmm? Well, yes, yes, of course. No, there isn't. Well, we'll get something. Yeah. Thanks. George, I was the manager. Word just came in at headquarters on that alarm. The plane's been found at Lake City. How about the two men? Lake City police are holding them. Well, I doubt we can get there tonight. Uh, probably not, but let's notify the Lake City police. We'd like to interview the men first thing in the morning. Mr. White, you claim you have no idea how your wallet got into the manager's office, huh? That's right. When do you last remember having it? I don't know. Wallets are for keeping money in, so I didn't get to use it a lot. Seems like y'all don't know me and Chuck ain't crooks. Mr. Anderson, White's wallet was found in the safe after the burglary. You both took off from the fair immediately after that safe was cracked. You both had money that was stolen last week at a fair in Oregon, and you both worked at that fair. But we told you we got that money from Mr. Williams. Yeah, I see him. We're trying to. Oh, hi, George. Fine earning? No. We've checked every Williams in the phone book and on the voting records. Today's his boy's birthday. That didn't help. Neither did that description you gave. You men know anybody who can prove there is such a man? No, I'm afraid not. We saw him and spoke to him. Don't that prove his real? Oh, I'm sorry, gentlemen. I'm afraid the evidence against you is pretty strong. FBI headquarters in Washington takes an important part in all cases. In this one, for example, agents Taylor and Bentley sent the fingerprints of Chuck White and Andy Anderson to Washington and also sent the description of the man they knew thus far only as Mr. Williams. Further investigation was also made on which fairs and carnivals Anderson and White had worked during the previous six months. Meanwhile, at an apartment in another city, the doorbell rang. Patience, patience. Coming, coming, coming. Hi, Al. Well, well, Roy. Come in, come in. Say, did you have any trouble brushing the two patsies? No, no, not a bit. Nice boys. I left them at the Lake City Airport. They were arrested an hour later. And what are you doing? Hanging picture. This, uh, this guy a friend of yours? A friend? Ah, yes. Yes, indeed, son. Who is he? A great man, son. A really great man. Son, that was Robert Adams, the father of American safecrackers. I never heard of him. Ah, it's too bad, yes. He was rather neglected in the history books. Quite a pity, quite a pity. Why, do you know... The reward on him was more than most men can steal in a lifetime. Oh, I don't know. We ought to be pretty fat in the loot department. Uh, where you got it? It's right over there on the table. It's waiting for you. The large envelope. How much is that? $8,000. Oh, brother, I can't wait to start spreading it around New York. Uh, New York? Yeah, I shipped my trunk up there, and I got a room waiting at a hotel. Hey, Roy, there's no point squandering the money that you work so hard to get. Now, listen, you take my advice. 
I wish somebody had given it to me when I was your age. Yes, sir. You get married. You get married to some nice girl like that, like that nice little girl up in Oregon. She's in jail. Oh. Well, there are other girls around. The place for you to go is south, my boy. There are plenty of carnivals running down there. You try to find one in Georgia or Florida. I still need them. For what? Well, I don't know. I suppose it's just an old man's pride. But before I retire, I would like to crack at least one safe in every state in the Union. We got some reports from Washington. Neither White nor Anderson has a criminal record. Anything back on that, Mr. Williams? Yes, there is a safe cracker with that name who answers the general description. They wire photo his picture for him. Oh, that it? Yeah, here, take a look at it. Mm -hmm. Are you the FBI man? Yes, that's right, man. The policeman at the desk said to see you. About what? Chuck White and Andy Anderson. I'm Betty Kimball. Oh, I'm Agent Bentley, and this is Agent Taylor. How do Kimball? you do? You know anything about the burglary? Just that they didn't do it. Are you related to White or Anderson? No. I was the press agent with the fair down to Auburn. Well, I see. Well, tell me, do you know a Mr. Williams? Williams. Hmm. Williams, isn't that the man that Chuck and Andy brought up here? No, it's their story. You can believe them about anything but their act. We have Williams' picture here, would you? Take a look at it, please. Mm-hmm. Ever see him? I think so. Where? I'm trying to remember. Sure. That's a guy I saw hanging around Roy Carter's pitch on the midway. Oh, they seem to know each other? Like old pals. Who is this Roy Carter? A grifter. He works carnies, fairs, any place he can set up a stand. Mm -hmm. Where can we locate him? In New York, but I don't know where. I ran into him yesterday while he was checking his equipment at the station. He told me he was going to New York for a vacation after he stopped to see a pal. George, that pal could be Williams. Yeah. Did he mention any other city? No. Well, if Carter bought a ticket to New York with stopover privileges, the railroad station might have a record of it. Let's call and check. George, the railroad says Carter's ticket allowed for a stop at Oakville. Oakville? Hal Williams was arrested there last year. Oh? And Washington sent this teletype. Those unidentified prints on the four safes are Williams. Well, then he probably did this last job, too. Yep. And they also learned that Roy Carter operated concessions at all the fairs and carnivals where the robberies were reported. Well, that ties them both in. Come on, we're going to Oakville. Never mind those phone books, George. Why? I found the cab driver who picked Carter up. Hey. And he remembers where he took him. Where's that? An apartment house at 73 Allen Street. Let's get over there. Janitor says Williams left town yesterday. For where? He doesn't know, but he told me Carter visited Williams a few days ago. They leave together? No, but, George, if they're back in action, maybe we can find out where. Let's get to a phone. Folks, you want to fool your friends, you want to get even with some rascal. Now, here's the way. Watch carefully. Just a minute, Roy. Where have you been? No place. I was here at 3 this afternoon, again at 6. Stand was closed both times. Oh, I met a girl. Girl? Who is she? Oh, local girl. Her mother's got a farm near here where guys and the lamb hide out. Oh, sounds like you're getting into a wonderful family. Hey, hey show for me. Here come a couple of customers. All right, folks, here's the magic deck. You always get an ace. See, here you are, mister. You shuffle. We didn't come here for that, Carter. We came for you. You too, Williams. I beg your pardon. Do we know each other? We're special agents of the FBI. These are warrants for your arrest. (laughs) 
Roy Carter and Al Williams were convicted of interstate transportation of stolen property and sentenced to federal prison. Special Agents Taylor and Bentley learned the name of the carnival at which Roy Carter was working by calling the railroad station in New York. The station master's office told them where Carter had requested that his equipment trunk be sent. The arrest of the two fugitives in this case illustrates not only the thoroughness of any investigation by your FBI, but also the labor which goes into freeing innocent suspects. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is proud of the fact that special agents have never set out to prove the innocence or guilt of any particular person, but have always concentrated on finding the evidence in a case and allowing the facts to speak for themselves. For only in that way can justice be served. And justice is the sole interest of your FBI. The incidents used in tonight's broadcast are adapted from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious. And any similarity thereof to the names of places or persons, living or dead, is accidental. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is your FBI. <laughs> your FBI, an official broadcast of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security, and to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. During the course of tonight's opening broadcast, you'll hear from Mr. Thomas I. Parkinson, President of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States, and Mr. J. Edgar Hoover, Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Tonight, the story of a crime against the nation, espionage. Spying is just like any other business. A spy gets paid so much a week to do so much work. And in most cases, that salary is small because most spies gather only small bits of information. But when these bits are pieced together in Berlin or Tokyo, the result is a stolen invention or a sunken concept. That's why spies are ordinary people working in ordinary places. Places like a waterfront where ships can be watched. Places like a factory where parts for new planes can be copied. Places like a bar where people talk and talk too much. Oh, brother, you should have seen. Yeah? She was steaming right into that bay when zoom. Out from no place come a zero. Zero. Zoom. 
bang. Oh. Bang is right. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Did, did I get any on you? No, 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 but it's uh, all over you, Junior. Willie. Willie. Gee, I'm sorry. A thousand apologies, fair lady. A million. <laughs> oh, oh, look at that. Uh, will you wipe it up, Willie, and get him another drink? Sure, sure. Uh, excuse me, young man. You're awfully cute, Junior, but you're getting a little messy. Poor battle wagon. She's stuck now. Uh, sunk off Guam? Yeah, but they got a new one. The biggest, best. Well, it's a heck of a battle wagon. It must be, Junior. You're pretty. <laughs> You hear that, George? Cheers. <laughs> where, where's my drink? I'll get it right away, sir. Uh, where was I? Uh, you were talking about that battle wagon. Oh, yeah. Honestly. Say, I'll tell you what. Friday morning, you walk up to the top of the street here, <laughs> and you'll see the newest battle wagon and the best maybe in the world come steaming down the bank. She's just in commission. Uh, excuse me, sir. It's still dripping on you. Yes. Then you'll see a real ship. Well, then let's drink to her. No, no, no. Let's drink to you. To the most beautiful girl. Oh. What's the matter, baby? Oh, I don't feel so bad. Oh. <laughs> Junior, now you've got to I, I think I'd better. <laughs> uh, here you are, son. You go right back there. <laughs> Thanks. Excuse me. Be right back. <laughs> Poor Junior. <laughs> oh, it's the same. What is, Willie? Those kids, they want to enjoy themselves, but they sit with people and drink too much. They talk too much. Talk too much? Hey, do you think we... I don't say you did anything. I just think it's the same, that's all. Let's get out of here, George. I'm sick of this stuff. Okay. Here you are. Thank you. What about your friend? Uh, tell him... Tell him we'll wait for him outside. That was in January, 1943. Early in February, three letters were brought to the attention of the FBI. Three pleasant letters, typewritten in English. Three innocent letters intercepted on their way to Switzerland. Three friendly letters containing, among other bits of information, a report and description of the newest battleship launched by our Navy. Come in. Yeah, hello, Dan. Hi. I've been waiting for you. Oh, chair. Thanks, Ross. Ah, you look bushed. Yeah, I am, kind of. Why don't you try hitting the hay early? Are you kidding? I was in bed at 11.30 last night. But starting at midnight, the phone rang every hour on the hour. Mm -hmm. My wife says she wishes she'd marry the doctor instead of an FBI agent. My wife's been wishing that for 15 years. Did you read those letters from Switzerland, Danny? Yes. Very dull if you don't happen to catch the parts printed in secret ink on the back. Have they been sent to the laboratory yet? No, they just got here. Oh, we'll send them through. Check the printing on the back. It's in German, isn't it? Yes, not in code, though. That's a help. Let's see. We'll have the ink check, typewriter, paper. <laughs> They're all signed Henry Ad uh, Henry Brown. Yes, and all postmarked New York City. Well, there must be a slew of Henry Browns in a small town like New York. And it's probably an alias, anyway. That's my guess, too. 
We'll check up on him anyway and see what the laboratory has to say. A spy doesn't usually know exactly how much information he'll be able to pick up or exactly when or where he will get it. He knows, of course, that convoy movements in general are valuable. And he knows, too, that he may get this information from Navy or waterfront personnel. He knows he may be able to pick it up around the docks. But he's never sure just how much information will fall into his eager lap, just when and from just whom. Sometimes it may come accidentally at an odd moment such as during a practice air raid, a blackout, say, near the harbor in New York City. Lights out! All lights out! Mrs. Johnson, turn out that bathroom light! Quiet, listen, this is a blackout. Mrs. Johnson! Turn out that bathroom light! Lights out! All lights out! Thank you, Mr. Simpson. Oh, good evening, Mr. Gordon. Uh, having trouble? That's where Mrs. Johnson, as usual. Yeah. This is dark now. Yeah, now, but I always have to yell my head off. Yeah. <laughs> She's a fine one. And my wife tells me she's always complaining about racing, too, and how she can't get enough coal. <laughs> quiet, listen, quiet. Is Blitzen sick? Hey, that's had distemper. Mm-hmm. People like Mrs. Johnson ought to wake up and learn there's a war going on. Blackouts are very important. If I weren't a warden, you wouldn't find me out tonight. Oh, aren't you feeling too good, Mr. Gordon? My kid's home on Liberty, and this is his last night. Well, he'll be back soon. Not this time. He says he's going on a convoy run to Russia. Russia? Mm. Right a trip. Yeah. And he's leaving tomorrow? Or the day after. Can you imagine? Just came back, too, from... Where was it? Italy. But that was a short run. They just dumped some machinery there. Airplane parts, probably. No. For tanks, I think he said it was. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, uh, how's business at the bar, Mr. Seabrook? Well, it's pretty good, thanks. Uh-huh. Well, I think this will be a short blackout, right? I hope so. Me, too. i got to write a letter before I go to bed. Business? No, it's to a friend in Brooklyn. Oh, you were over there in 41, weren't you? Yeah. Fine country. Well, good night, Mr. Gordon. Good night, Mr. Seabury. A spy, you see, can be a very ordinary man. He doesn't have to live in a penthouse and drive a low-slung car. He doesn't have to work with a bulging wallet and an exotic woman. He doesn't have to employ gunmen disguised as chauffeurs or secretaries or waiters. He can be a waiter himself. A waiter in a sick dog. A waiter named Willie Seabrook. As a matter of fact, it's better for the enemy if he is, because ordinary men like Willie Seabrook are hard to track down. Well, Ross, we know what kind of a typewriter our friends use, and we've had every agent in New York checking on them. What angle are you working on? We're taking the chance that a good percentage of the drivel he writes in English to his Swiss friend is the truth. Mm-hmm. So we've drawn up a list of what the man's like, and we're checking that. Want to see it? Yeah. Hey, Jan. Thanks. And speak and write both English and German fluently. You can get that, of course, just from the languages used in the letters. 
He's married, has a dog that had distemper recently, and lives near the New York Harbor. That's just a guess. <laughs> this is a good one. He probably poses as a great patriot, inasmuch as he is an air raid warden. He asked his friend in Switzerland to address him as Dear Willie in his letter. He came back from Europe in the spring of 1941. He was... Wait a minute. Get something? I don't know. I, uh... I'm looking over this letter you just brought in. Listen to this. Mm-hmm. I would love to wander through Lisbon again. Particularly at this time of the year. Lisbon, eh? Yes. He came back from Lisbon in the spring of 41, Ross. If he's writing the truth. Well, we've got to take a chance on that. What are you going to do? Check on everybody who came into this country from Lisbon in the spring of 41. We don't even know the name he came in under. No, but we know what his handwriting is like. And if he came in from Lisbon, he had baggage. And if he had baggage, he had to declare it in his real name. And if he declared it, he had to declare it in handwriting. Sure, but there must be hundreds of those baggage declarations. There are thousands of air raid wardens and with dogs. Okay. Ever look for a needle in a haystack before? Yep, I have. But this time, we're going to find it. <laughs> momentarily close the Federal Bureau of Investigation file on the case of Willie Sebring. We will return to this case in just a moment. It is now my privilege to present the President of the Equitable Society of the United States, Mr. Thomas I. Parkinson. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You deserve a clear and forthright statement of the reason why the Equitable has undertaken the sponsorship of these radio broadcasts. For 86 years, this mutual society has shielded the financial welfare of millions of American families. And whenever there has been an opportunity for the equitable to serve the public interest, we have gladly undertaken that privilege. We believe that no medium more vital than this official FBI broadcast could be used to bring the society closer to its members and those who may become members in the future. Our business, too, is the business of safeguarding the security of the American family whether it be through the provision of life insurance protection for your loved ones, or the protection of your homes and property, or the financing of industry to make more and better jobs, or the participation in war bond subscriptions and other war activities. In fact, in nearly every form of security other than the services rendered by your FBI, the Equitable considers itself your partner and your friend. Through the medium of these radio programs, we hope to let you know of the manifold ways in which the equitable can serve and is serving you and your community. Our business is carrying on into the next generation the benefits of savings in this generation. Public service and human relationships. The preservation of homes for widows and children. The education of sons and daughters. The security and comfort of thousands of elderly men and women living in retirement. And finally, the peace of mind of the American citizen is the mission of our society. And after all, there could be no closer parallel to the objectives of your Federal Bureau of Investigation. Thank you, Mr. Parkinson. And now we continue with the file on the case of Willie Sebring, spy. Being a special agent of the FBI is a business, too, but a business unlike any other. 
An FBI agent, for example, must be a college graduate or have a degree in law or accounting. He must go to school all over again when he enters the Bureau. He must be intelligent, observant, and thorough. So thorough that the notion of examining hundreds and hundreds of baggage declarations will not faze him. Actually, special agents of the FBI discovered that from February 1st to May 5th, 1941, boats sailing from Lisbon brought 3,095 aliens and 1,786 citizens to the port of New York. Approximately 5,000 people. Approximately 5,000 baggage declarations to check. Approximately 5,000 samples of handwriting to check against the handwriting on the letters to Switzerland. To match, to examine, to scrutinize, to sweat over, pour over, work over. Wait a minute. I think he's got it. Yes. Here, look. You see that M? See that German F? Get the slant of the print here. Here. I think we've got it. I think the laboratory will back us up that Mr. William Sebring is our boy. William Sebring, eh? I'd almost swear to it, Ross. What's the report on him? He was born in Germany, but he became a citizen here in 1925. That takes in the languages. He's married, and he's an air raid warden. Has he got a dog? Well, the AFTCA has three dogs registered in his wife's name. I see. It follows all the way down the line, Ross. He lives near the harbor. He works in a bar near the harbor. Come in. This just came over the telephone. Thanks. Ross, if Willie Sebring isn't the man, no one is. Sit down, Dan. Huh? What's the matter? Sit down. Mr. Hoover sent this over the teletype exactly seven minutes ago. Concluded question script writing on intercept this case, written by William Sebring. Baggage declaration and letter to bank written by Sebring. However, insufficient samples to ascertain whether Sebring hand-printed German messages in secret ink. Also, no typewriting specimens available for comparison. Not enough proof. I'm afraid not, then. Okay. Now what? I think she brings the man. I think Mr. Hoover does, too. But we need more proof. Yes. More samples of his handwriting. And his printing, if we can get it. And typewriter specimens. That's right. Get them, and we get Sebring. I'm going to pay a call on Mr. Willie Sebring. You may scare him. Not this way. His wife rents rooms in their house. I've been instructed to be a rumor. I'll be a welder working in the Navy Yard. That ought to interest Willie. Why don't you try across the street? I've got a room there. Oh, thanks. I guess it doesn't matter. Same distance from the Navy Yard. Be quiet, Piston. Well, hello there, old sport. <laughs> oh, uh, do you like doors? Sure. Well, in that case, I'll tell you what. My wife will probably bite my head off, but 
We have a room on the top floor. Oh, thanks. Uh, I don't want to get you in your way. No, no, it's all right. Come on in. Well, thanks, Mr. Um, Sebring. Willie Sebring. Dan Braddock. Glad to meet you. Thanks. You know why I'm really giving you this room? No, why? The Navy Yard. I don't get you. Any man who works for the war effort, I do what I can for. Say, you're a real patriot, Mr. Sebring. One hundred percent. Fight this way. For six dollars a week, the special agent, posing as Dan Braddock, welder, rented a room from Willie Sebring, spy. And at the end of the week, that room was worth exactly six dollars and no more. The agent found that Sebring left the house each day at 3 p.m., went to the bar, came home for supper at 8.30, and went to the bar until midnight. He found that there were two roomers in the house beside himself. He found that Sebring spent most of his time in the attic, which had a view of the harbor. Beyond that, he found nothing. And the letters to Switzerland had stopped. So on the afternoon of the 21st of May, Mr. Willie Sebring's hand was forced. No, Clifton, no. No, I said no. If you eat too much, you'll get sick again. Now, be quiet. Excuse me, Mr. Sebring. Oh, hello, Mr. Braddock. Come on in. Thanks. Sit down. Thank you. Well, still on the night shift, huh? Yeah. Well, those new ships probably need very careful work. Oh, they do, but they're honeys. Oh, I'm sure. I sneaked a picture of one I wanted to send to my kid brother. He's in the Pacific. A picture, huh? Yeah. Say, uh, Mr. Sebring, I wonder, could you do me a favor? Well, I'd be only too glad to, sure. I want to send this package to the kid, but I can't address it. Huh? You see, I burnt my hand last night. Oh, my, that's a shame. Oh, it's not too bad. It doesn't bother me, except I can't hold a pen in it. That's tough. I was wondering if you had a typewriter in the house. You know, I could type up a label. A typewriter? Yeah. No, no, there's no typewriter here. I'll tell you what, though, my... My handwriting isn't so good, but I I could print the address for you in ink. Swell. I'd appreciate well, that. There's no sense at all. <laughs> Listen, be quiet. This dog will be the death of me, one of you say. Now, uh, who does this go to? Sergeant Fred Braddock. S E R G. Once again, a handwriting specimen comes to the FBI laboratory. In all, 5,376 specimens were checked in this one case. But this is the last. This is it. This is proof, neatly signed by Willie Sebring himself. Only one thing more remains. One missing piece of evidence. One last final proof. A typewriter. Hiya, Blitzen, old boy. What's the matter with you tonight, huh? Lonely for your master? Well, he'll be back later. But in the meantime, we'll have a little look around without him, huh? We'll see where he... Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't scare me out of my wits. I really am uh, sorry. I didn't mean to frighten you. My my name is. Uh... I know you're you're Mr. Braddock. How do you know? Mrs. Sebring told me. 
Well, I didn't know you lived here. Well, I board here, but I've been away on a two-week vacation. Oh. Uh, did you take your typewriter with you? Why, yes. Why? Oh, I was looking for one the other day. Well, you can borrow this anytime you want. Everybody else in the house does. From Mr. Sebring down, huh? Mainly Mr. Sebring. At 2.30 p.m. on the 5th of May, Willie Sebring left his house, walked to the corner, and waited for a bus. He never caught that bus because two special agents of the FBI came up, identified themselves, and asked him to go with them to their New York office to answer some questions. Willie Sebring smiled. He was a patriot, so he went willingly. At 3.15 that afternoon, he sat in conference room C on the sixth floor of the FBI office in New York. Mr. Sebring, I want to tell you frankly that you don't have to answer any questions if you don't want to. Oh, I consider it my duty as a citizen to answer questions. Don't you, Mr. Frederick? We all do. But you understand, Mr. Sebring, that anything you say can be used against you later on. Against me? Sure, of course I understand that, but if anything I've done, it certainly was done innocently. Okay. Mr. Sebring, were you in Lisbon in the spring of 1941? Why, yes, as a tourist. Where were you born? In Europe. Germany? Yes, but now I'm a citizen of the United States, of course. And I'm an air raid warden. I know that. Mr. Sebring, look at this baggage declaration. Did you write it? Yes, when I came back from Lisbon. Okay. Look at this package. Did you address it? Well, yes. Mr. Braddock said it was for his brother. But I guess... Mr. Sebring, look at this letter, please. No. Look at the back, where the secret ink has been developed. Did you write that? Yeah. Could I have a cigarette? Spying is just like any other business. Its market is the enemy. Its merchandise is talk, gossip, conversation in a bar, on a street, on a train. In times like this, in wartime, the FBI is more alert, more watchful than ever. It has a tremendous job to perform. In this country, espionage is under control. But remember, talk is the merchandise of spying, and its market is the enemy. What you talk about in a public place may seem unimportant to you. But if it's anything connected with the war, you may be helping spies. You may be writing a letter to Tokyo or Berlin. Before we close tonight's file... It is our special privilege and pleasure to introduce the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who is in Washington, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Your FBI hopes that these broadcasts will help you to know more about the organization which is dedicated to the safeguarding of your welfare and that of your family. 
Perhaps through these radio broadcasts, you will not only be entertained by the stories of your FBI in action, but you may also gain a better appreciation of your own personal responsibility to your family and to the community in which you live. And I want both you and Mr. Parkinson to know that speaking for myself and for the whole Bureau, I am especially pleased that these messages are being brought to you under the sponsorship of another institution which likewise is dedicated to the security of the family, the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Every man, woman, and child in this nation should be alert and ever watchful for the slightest information which might lead to prevention of a crime by our enemies within and without the United States. While our fighting men all over the world are tonight meeting the enemy on land, in the air, and on the sea, it is a duty of every one of us to protect them by guarding the homeland they have left in our trust. It is my sincere hope that these broadcasts will enable you to know more about how to cooperate with your local police officials and every branch of law enforcement in your community. I also hope that you will come to know your FBI as a group of men and women who seek no personal glory and who are part of a great Incidents used in tonight's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious. Any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. In tonight's cast, the part of Sebring was played by James Van Dyke, Dan by Carl Swenson, and Ross by Jeffrey Bryant. Others in the cast were Francis Cheney, Helen Lewis, Will Hare, Chuck Webster, Jack McBride, and Brad Barker. The music for tonight's performance was under the direction of Van Cleve. The author was Lawrence MacArthur, and your narrator was Frank Lovejoy. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for This is Your FBI. broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation.
presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. To your FBI, you look for national security, and to the Equitable Society for financial security. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you, your home, and your country. Tonight, the story of a crime against the home. Kidnapping. Just as it takes a special type of criminal to become a Hitler, so it takes a special type to become a kidnapper. Someone who refuses to face the fact that eventually all kidnappers and those who aid them will be hunted down by the FBI until they are dead or brought to justice. Such criminals aren't born, they're made. Created by environment, by society, by circumstance. And in one case, the kidnapper was created by something else, too. By his wife. Sally. Hmm? Ain't that enough for today? No. That last round was... No, Frank. I'm tired. Then rest for a minute. Dragging me out here every day for two weeks. I'm a good enough shot. For small-time hold-ups, maybe. That bank job was no... You don't have to tell me about that bank job, Frank. That was my idea. Just like everything's been my idea. Okay. It's all yours. Take the gun, too. Darling, darling. You know I didn't mean it that way. Mm. You know I plan everything just for you. Besides... I couldn't do it all myself. If you could, you would. Don't be silly. I don't know what the point of all this target practice is anyway. It's going to give you a reputation. With two stretches behind me, I've got one. Like a hundred others. But you're going to be bigger. Bigger than all of them. Bigger? Yes. What's the point of being anything if you can't be the biggest, the best, if you can't be number one? (laughs) And that's what we're going to be, Frank. Number one. You're crazy. Wait and see. Look, a couple more bank jobs and we can be driving on gasoline for the rest of our lives. Uh-huh. That's what my father must have said to my mother. And what were they? Petty crooks. Now they have to live on what I hand out to them. No, darling. We're going to do it right. One real job. And then we quit. What one real job? Never mind. Come on. When we're ready, I'll tell you. Sally! Darling. Have I ever given you a bum steer? Well... Have I? No, but... Now empty both barrels like a good boy, and we'll call it quits for today. Professional criminals don't work alone. They help each other. The most successful are those who get the most help, and they get it through their reputations in the crime world. Sally Hadley learned this the way most people learn things, through experience. She made her husband an expert with a sawed-off shotgun. And then she made herself his press agent. She gave him a name, Shotgun Hadley. She passed out shells as souvenirs. She planned robberies and hold-ups, saw that he carried them out perfectly. She built up his reputation. And then she was ready. Ready for really big game. Ready for that hot Saturday night in July when an Oklahoma millionaire named Walter Montgomery... He was playing cards on the screen porch of his home 
with his wife and his best friend. There's no point in playing with you, Henry. You always win. You and Walter just let me win because I'm your guest, right, Walter? I'm sorry, what'd you say, Henry? Oh, Walt. I thought I heard a car stop down below. You always think you hear something nobody else does. How about another hand? Not for me. Me either. I'm about ready for bed. Oh, why don't you... Sit down and keep quiet. What are you... Sit down. The shotgun works. Which one of you is Walter Montgomery? What do you want to know? Never mind. Which one of you is Montgomery? Which one of them is your husband, lady? Okay, I'll take both of them. But you can't... Shut up. Come on, on your feet, boys. We're going for a little drive. If you ever want to see your husband again, stay away from the phone, Mrs. Montgomery. I told you the shotgun works. One hour later, a blue sedan stopped at an intersection 12 miles from Oklahoma City. A man was shoved out and his empty wallet thrown after him. Then the car continued on its way with Walter Montgomery blindfolded on the back seat. Just about that time, Mrs. Montgomery was putting through a long-distance call. She knew kidnapping was a federal offense, and following the attorney general's advice to the public, she telephoned Mr. J. Edgar Hoover in Washington. In less than 45 minutes, special agents assigned by Mr. Hoover were on their way. They took no immediate action... Not even four days later when Mrs. Montgomery received a typewritten letter. The first of a series of letters. The first of a series of ransom notes. There was this note from my husband enclosed in the letter. Are you sure that's his handwriting, Mrs. Montgomery? Yes. He he said to give them the $200,000. He certainly said a high price. Did they give you instructions how to pay? Well, the letter says to watch for an ad in the paper. And then take an ad yourself. Yes. Then it told you not to notify the police. Yes. Not to take down the serial number of the bills and have only, oh, used $20 notes. How did you know? We haven't been reading your mail. It's just that kidnapping notes always follow the same pattern. Who do they want as the intermediary to deliver the money? Henry, Mr. Carroll. He's my husband's best friend. Well, if they put that ad in the paper tomorrow and you answer immediately, your husband should be back on the first of next week. Unless something happens. What do you mean? Mr. Schuyler. Yes? I want to cooperate with the government. I know kidnappers are the worst kind of criminals. But you see, I... Well, I want my husband back. Please don't do anything. Mrs. Montgomery, there's no need for you to worry. The first concern of the FBI in any kidnapping case is to get the victim home safely. We want to see your husband back here as much as you do. And we won't make one single move that will stand in the way of his coming back. Three days later, arrangements were made to have a satchel containing $200,000 thrown from the observation platform of a speeding train at a certain spot in Oklahoma. Although no one knew it, the serial number of every bill was taken down and listed. And nine days after he was kidnapped, Walter Montgomery came home to his wife. He hadn't had much sleep. He was very tired, but he was safe. He was alive. He was home. As soon as he'd recovered from the shock and rested, he was interviewed by the FBI. Ah, Mr. Montgomery. Yes? 
What was the last thing you saw before being blindfolded? Why, uh, a lot of lights. Must have been some kind of plant. Well, there was a power plant near where they dropped Mr. Carroll. It could have been a power plant. All right. Now, on the way to the house, did you hear anything? Well, uh, one or two cars passed us, but... Oh, yes. We must have passed an oil field. Why? I heard the sound of the pumps. And uh, twice I remember smelling gas. Well, then you passed two oil fields. That's right. Now, how long after you passed that second field would you guess it was before you got to the house? Oh, I don't know for sure. Not long, though. Fifteen minutes? Oh, less. I think uh, about ten, say. Good. How did the car drive right up to the house, or did they stop for anything? They uh, stopped to open a gate. How do you know? I heard a creak. Mm-hmm. And then they drove right up to the house? No, they drove into some kind of a building. Mm-hmm. A barn, it must have been, because I could smell hay. Well, then the house is probably a farmhouse. Yes. Yes. Was it close to the barn? It was exactly 12 steps away. I counted them. Glad you did. Now, tell me. Did you have to go up any steps to the house? Three. And they creaked. What happened when you got inside? Well, they put cotton in my ears and taped it over with adhesive so I couldn't hear what they said. Mm -hmm. But... Every morning, I could hear a rooster crow, and then about, uh, oh, less than a minute afterward, the sound of an airplane passing over the house. An airplane? Did you hear it every day? Yes. Uh, No. One day, it didn't come. Which day? Well, I I don't know. But it rained that day. That was Sunday. That's the only day it rained while you were away. And that's the only day you didn't hear the airplane. That's right. I don't know whether this is of any aid to you. At the time, I knew I should try to remember everything that happened so I could be of assistance. Mr. Montgomery, I think you've practically drawn us a map right to that farmhouse. For the FBI, anything can be a clue. The lights on a power plant, the smell of an oil field, the sound of an airplane... Using the information gotten from Mr. Montgomery, special agents mapped a circle, a ring around the approximate location of the farmhouse. They went to the airlines, checked schedules, checked flights, checked what line did not run a plane on that one Sunday. They figured over approximately what area the early morning flight passed and the ring around the farmhouse grew smaller, tighter, closer. Now the FBI agents moved into the ring looking for the farmhouse. Looking for a farmhouse with a gate wide enough for a car to pass through. A farmhouse with a barn only 12 steps away. 12 steps away from a porch with three creaking stairs. Sorry, I didn't know there was anyone home. Well, you can see I'm home, can't you? Yes. What do you want? I'm representing a real estate company in Tulsa. We're looking over farms in this neighborhood with a view to buying them. You want to buy this farm? Does it belong to you? Well, it belongs to my daughter, Mrs. Hadley. Sally Hadley? Yes. You know her? I've heard of her. Oh, 
Do you know where I can get in touch with her? I can speak for her. She was going to give me the place anyways now. Hmm? You want to buy it? Well, looks like the right place to me. But I'll have to have some of the men in my company look it over this afternoon if it's all right with you. Oh, it's fine with me. You'll be here. Yeah, I'll be here. As long as I can count on seeing you later. Oh, don't worry. You can count on seeing me. Definitely. We momentarily close the Federal Bureau of Investigation file of the case of Shotgun Hatley. We will return to this case in just a moment. In pioneer days, Americans looked to their neighbors for security. When Mrs. Brown was sick abed, neighboring wives came over to help out. If her husband died, neighbors saw to it that she and her children had clothes, food, and shelter. But as the nation grew in population, as life became more complex, this neighborly security was no longer sufficient. To take its place in the year 1859, a group of Americans founded the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States. Today it has grown into a strong mutual organization in which each member enjoys the advantages of association with 3,200,000 good neighbors who have pooled their dollars to protect each other. The equitable management then puts these dollars to work in ways that benefit the entire nation. Equitable funds encourage home ownership. They lend the farmer a helping hand. They finance great industries on which our prosperity depends. So is it not right and proper to speak of life insurance funds as one of democracy's greatest assets? By serving its members, the equitable serves America. And now, back to the file on Shotgun Hadley, Kidnapper. Small things, but enough for the FBI special agents to move swiftly on the trail of the kidnappers. The parents of Sally Hadley were arrested and jailed. Throughout the nation, the FBI sent a list of the serial numbers on the ransom money, sent a description of the kidnapper, sent the call, find shotgun Hadley. To the FBI, Frank Hadley was another criminal who had to be caught. To the nation, he was public enemy number one. To his wife, with whom he shared a hotel suite in St. Louis, shotgun Hadley was a frightened fool. We don't have to get out of here. Now sit down and cool off, darling. Sally, they've got the serial numbers of this dough. Shall I mix you another drink, too? They've picked up some of the bills already. Frank, will you sit down and relax? Sure. Sit down and wait for them to clap us in jail, along with your mother and father. They're not going to put us in jail because they're not going to catch us. They will if we don't get on the move. We'll move. But there's something we've got to do first. What? Sit down. What for? Go on. Oh. That's it, darling. Now, you're going to write a letter. A letter? Mm-hmm. Here's a pen and paper. Just write what I tell you. Who the two? Just write what I tell you. Dear Mr. Hoover. What? Are you... Go con- on. Dear Mr. Hoover, while you and your men are knocking yourselves out... Sorry, no, change that to wearing yourselves out. I am living on the fat of the land. Go on, darling. Wait a minute. What's the rest of this going to say? 
Oh, it's going to say that he'll never catch you because you're too good for him. What? You did this alone, all by yourself, without anyone's help. And you did. What are you trying to do, tie a noose around my neck? Frank, this is a confession. He's got my poor mother and father in jail, and I've got to get them out. By having me confess? Look, he knows you did it anyway. This will just clear my folks and show him that you're not afraid of anyone. It'll just put me in jail instead of them. Oh. You're really afraid of your own shadow, aren't you, darling? Now, listen. But... You listen to me. Now, when I married you, I thought you were a man. I thought you were a man who could be the number one boy in this country. I thought you had guts. Sally, I... What are you afraid of? You are number one now. You've got to show them that. You've got to show them that they're the ones to be afraid. You've got to show them that you're too big to touch. Because you are, Frank. You are. Sally, look. If we mail the letter we're from here, we... We're not going to. I'm going to send it to a friend of mine in Chicago and have her mail it from there. When they get it, they'll see how big you are. They'll see you don't care. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And then tomorrow, we're going to buy another car, and before they even have a chance to look at the bills, we'll be on our way. Okay, okay, honey, okay. You just don't realize what a big man you've become. Now, what have you written? Dear Mr. Hoover, while you and your men are... Wait. Wait, I've got a wonderful idea. An idea that will top the whole thing off. What now? Hoover may think the letter is from some crank. But do you know what you're going to do? You're going to put your fingerprints on it, darling. What? You're going to prove this is straight from Shotgun Hadley. <laughs> From Chicago, from Dallas, from Denver, from cities all over the West come letters to the FBI. And as the letters turn up, money turns up too, ransom money. $20 bills reported by alert citizens to the FBI. $20 bills that put the FBI closer on the trail of Frank and Sally Hadley. But Sally Hadley has gotten impatient. Leaving her husband in a small house near Memphis, she buys a cheap gingham dress, a red wig, and a second-hand car and with complete unconcern, drives right back to Oklahoma. On the way, she gives a lift to two hitchhikers, a man and his eight-year-old daughter. I guess your little girl is asleep, Mr. Butler. Yeah. She was awful tired. Of course she was. Well, we'll get her a good dinner as soon as we get to town. Well, you've been so nice, I couldn't let you do anything else for us, ma'am. Oh, don't be silly. I want to. Besides... She reminds me of my own little girl. Oh, do you have one? Yes. By my first husband. He died, poor man, and... Frank, that's my second husband. He won't let my little baby live with her. Oh, that's terrible. Well, he isn't a very nice man. He... Mr. Butler. Yeah? Can I trust you? Of course. I... I'm in terrible trouble, and I've got to speak to somebody... I just got to get help from someone. Ma'am, if there's anything at all I can do. Well, maybe you won't say that when you know the truth. I'm Sally Hadley, and my husband is Shotgun Hadley. The kidnapper? Yes. Gee. I didn't know what kind of a man he was when I married him. I... Well, it's a little too late for that now, isn't it? But he's done terrible things to me, too, to my little girl, to my family. Oh. Because of him, my poor mother and father are in jail now, and... In... 
Mr. Butler, I just got to get them out. But the papers. I know, I know, but anything my father and mother did, he made them do at the point of that shotgun of his. Oh, Mr. Butler, will you do me a favor, please? Will you will you just go to Oklahoma City and see my lawyer for me? Sure. You see, I can't go because the police are looking for me. But I want him to get a message to the FBI for me. I want him to tell them that if they'll release my mother and father, I'll tell them where my husband is. I'll be glad to take your message, Mrs. Hadley. Uh, Only... Only what? Well, my little girl... Oh, don't worry about her. I'll keep her here with me. Why, she'll be as safe as my own little girl would be. Hello, Skyler speaking. Oh, yes. No, not just yet. I'm trying to reach the Bureau in Washington. May I call you back in a few minutes? Fine. Goodbye. Mrs. Hadley's lawyer again. Pretty anxious for our answer, isn't he? Yes. You suppose he seriously thinks we're going to release the mother and father, Skyler? I don't know. Maybe he's as crazy as Sally Hadley. There's a sweet double-crosser for you. Hmm. Ready to sell out her own husband. Well, if he's half as tough as his reputation, I don't blame her. I wonder if she was crazy enough to come back here to Oklahoma. She might be. One sure thing, though. We know she hasn't been to a lawyer's office. I don't think we can stall him much longer. We don't have to. He's covered by now, and as soon as we find Sally Hadley's intermediary, we'll find her. And her sharpshooting husband. Right. Will you get Mrs. Hadley's lawyer for me, please? Sally Hadley, waiting in an auto camp outside Oklahoma City for the message from a lawyer, gets frightened. And so Sally Hadley, with a little child as her protection, runs to her husband, who is now in Memphis. Meanwhile, special agents of the FBI located a man in Oklahoma City. The man who was Sally Hadley's intermediary. The man whose eight-year-old child is on her way to a gangster's hideout. Well, now we've got a little eight-year-old girl to worry about, Skyler. Yes. I just hope that Hadley woman is here. Hello. Skyler. You did? I see when. Hmm. Okay, we'll see what you can pick up. Well, that's that. What? The Hadley woman cleared out of the auto camp. Where's she going? I don't know. But we'd better send out a call for a woman driving with an eight-year-old girl. A woman with a red wig. Right. She's probably going back to her husband. That's my guess, too. And they'll probably try to move with the little girl. Scholar speaking. Yes. Yes, go on. Got it. Right. Right. That was Memphis. Oh. Two days ago, a second-hand car dealer down there brought in a flock of those $20 bills. Then a man who sells wigs brought in another. I see. And at 4 o'clock this afternoon, a liquor dealer brought in another. Well, I guess I'd better phone my wife and tell her I won't be home for dinner again. Yes, I think we'll be having dinner in Memphis. At a quarter to four, one September morning, a little girl sat on the Memphis Railroad Station. A frightened little girl clutching a ticket that would take her back to her father. 
but a little girl who remembered that she had had supper in a frame house near the edge of the city and that she had seen a shotgun in that house. At 5.35 that same morning, agents of the FBI and local officers surrounded the frame house. They were armed with guns, with guns to battle against the murderous reputation of a man called Shotgun Hadley. It was just beginning to get light when two of them quietly entered the house. They stood for a moment in a dark room. To the left were two doors, two closed doors leading to two bedrooms, leading to Shotgun Hadley. They opened the first. Keep quiet. Who are you? Federal Bureau of Investigation. Federal Oh, thank God. Listen, he's in there. Get him. He ruined my life. That was Sally Hadley, the woman who had planned the kidnapping. The woman who later tried unsuccessfully to convince a jury that she was innocent. The woman who cared no more for her husband than she did for his gun. But she had built up a tremendous reputation for him. And now, as the FBI agents moved to the door of his bedroom, they checked their guns. They tried to anticipate the blast of that shotgun. And then, in a quick movement, they rushed the door to Frank Hadley. There was no battle, no fight, no shooting. Frank Hadley, kidnapper, Frank Shotgun Hadley, public enemy number one, stood against the wall, his hands raised high, his knees shaking. Don't shoot, G-Man. Don't shoot. That was the beginning of the popular use of the phrase G-Men. G-Men meaning government men, meaning FBI agents. And that was the first and last time Frank or Sally Hadley tried a kidnapping. No kidnapper in this country has ever tried twice once the FBI has caught them. Because the FBI is the largest protective force in the world. You see, it doesn't consist only of a director and a Washington headquarters of field officers and special agents. It also consists of you and all those like you. In every case, it's the cooperation of the people which enables the FBI to find the criminal. And that is the way it should be. Because the FBI, like our government, is created by the people, for the people. It is the people. Have you ever said to yourself, no, I can't possibly buy an extra war bond? And then you find yourself thinking of someone you know in the Army or Navy... Your son, your brother, your neighbor. And you think, what are your sacrifices compared to his? And so somehow or other you find the money for that extra war bond. Remember the extra satisfaction you felt? Well, that's how members of the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States feel about the special campaign their society is conducting this month. All premium dollars received from new equitable policies written in April will be matched with an equal number of dollars by the equitable, and the combined total will be used to purchase extra war bonds during the seventh war loan drive in May. Remember, these war bonds will be over and above the equitable's other purchases, which amounted to the largest 
single subscription in both the fifth and sixth war loan drives. In wartime, equitable dollars are fighting dollars, and at all times they are security dollars for you, your home, your country. used in tonight's broadcast are taken from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. However, all names used are fictitious, and any similarity thereof to the names of persons living or dead is accidental. In tonight's cast, Sally was played by Leslie Woods and Hadley by Mandel Kramer. The music was under the direction of Van Cleave. The author was Lawrence MacArthur, and your narrator was Frank Lovejoy. This is your FBI is a Jerry Devine production. This is Carl Frank speaking for the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and inviting you to tune in again next week at this same time for this is your FBI. Network of the American Broadcasting Company. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.